Hey, I'm Will Ross. And I'm Devin Scott. We're friends and independent filmmakers. I'm an editor and sound designer. Devin is a cinematographer and colorist. On today's episode, we're going to talk about how the famed editor and sound designer Walter Murch, who did movies like Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, and the re-release of Touch of Evil, created a revolutionary sound design technique in the way it was used in George Lucas's American Graffiti. Welcome to Film Formally! Hello, everybody. Welcome. So today, uh, you specifically, but I'm also happy to talk about it. <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about Walter Murch's use of worldizing, particularly in the uh, flagship for the technique, American Graffiti. This is one that you were uh, really excited about. I'm excited yeah, to talk I, about. Yeah, because I like Echo. Yeah, and it's You it's can see I echoed. Not, you know, I stood far from the mic, so it echoed. That's worldizing. That's that's worldizing. So that's now, not worldizing. No, that's not what worldizing is. That's not even close. Worldizing, for those of you who don't know, is so famous of a technique, it's practically proprietary <laughs> to one Walter Murch. He's famous as uh, an editor. Most notably, he worked on a lot of films with Francis Ford Coppola, including Apocalypse Now, Godfather 2. He also did work with George Lucas, including uh, sound design work on THX and on American Graffiti. In the late 60s, Walter Murch developed this technique called worldizing. And the idea of worldizing is to try to make the sound that you hear in the film sound the same way it would in the space that you're looking at. Now, a lot of sound that is put into movies is recorded in a studio and then dubbed in after the fact. So worldizing is a way to make it sound more accurate to the space. It's, it makes it sound diegetic, which means yeah. coming from the world of the film. They would essentially record um, the entire soundtrack from a couple of different mic perspectives. And then they, they would have, I believe, three or so versions from different perspectives, the dry mix, the wet mix, and a really wet mix, and then mix between those three. Yeah. Uh, so rewinding on this, I think a good way to introduce it is uh, even going back into the 1930s when you had radio as the dominant ongoing transmissive mode of storytelling with sound. In movies at that time, miking or setting up microphones was still so technically hamstrung that there was really not all that much you could do to change up the nature of the synchronized sound. But in radio, given that everything is dependent on the microphones and recording space, and you're not tethered by the camera or what the image is showing or having to be synchronized to it, you could do anything. So people would put the mic on the other side of the recording studio, brush stuff up against the mic, but people would use an echo chamber where they have a room that is specifically set up to catch a lot of reverberations and echoes of the sound, and they would play back a cleanly recorded sound in that chamber. And the result of playing that in that echo chamber is that it would be really echoey and have a lot of reverb. And so you could then use that in your radio show to make it seem like, oh, they're in a big church, they're in a cave, they're in whatever, right? And this echo chamber technique winds up getting used in movies quite a bit. Uh, one good example is if you ever watch Citizen Kane, 
the Thatcher library scene where the reporter goes to this uh, big library to read some unpublished parts of a uh, memoir from one of the characters is just full of reverberation. It sounds like they're in a massive space, which gets across the idea not only of the personal wealth and stature of the character, but of the fact that he's he's left nothing behind, right? His life is ultimately empty. And that almost certainly was not how the sound was recorded within that actual space. That was probably, even the dialogue was probably recorded after the fact and then dubbed in because that was filmed on a set, probably in a studio. They probably actually had fairly clean sound conditions. It's not just how echoey something sounds that gives you a sense of what's called sound perspective. Um, It's also... Uh, how loud the sound is, the pitch of the sound, and other modulations that occur uh, when a sound is farther away or in a certain space. So there's a lot of different techniques that people in sound mixing use. The most common way to make something sound farther away in a movie, and this is what I tend to use, is just leveling it down, just making it quieter. The advantage to that is that if you have someone speaking from far away, and you just level them down without giving them any echoiness or reverberation on their voice is that their voice is still quite clear while still communicating intuitively to the audience. Oh, this guy's farther away because we hear him less. It, It matches. In the case of Walter Murch, the problem with adopting that technique is that it's pretty limited in the kinds of spaces it can suggest. An echo chamber is just that. It's a chamber. It's sort of a big, empty space. You can play back sounds in it, and it will give you a reverberant version of that that sounds big and empty and hollow. It's not actually that good at capturing all the different little characteristics of a sound within a space. So let's say you're in a church and you shout. It's going to sound different than if you're in a parking garage and you shout. In a parking garage, you have all these cars and air ducts and metallic surfaces for the sound to bounce off of, and that'll give it a certain effect and a metallic twing, and the echoes will be bouncing around at different rates. The sound will decay in different ways. So because of that, Walter Murch develops this technique where he will record the sound cleanly and get a nice, just good recording, often a studio recording of a sound, then he'll take that sound out into an environment that either is the same environment or is a very similar environment to the one that will be shown on screen in the film. Then he will play back that recorded sound, that cleanly recorded sound, and at the same time on another device, record that sound on a microphone. The result of that is that he gets a recording that matches the space, that matches how that sound will actually behave within a given space. The final advantage to worldizing is that you have what's called the dry recording. That's the one that they originally brought into the space and the wet recording. That's the one that they got with all the reverberations and sound characteristics of the room. And you can bring those back into your mixing space and you can decide how loud you want them to be relative to each other. Because if you just have the wet recording going, then often it just sounds very, very muddy and indistinct and it doesn't really pop in the way you might want in a film or it might not be clear enough. And so you'll balance the wet mix and the dry mix against each other until you find the desired effect. And that's, that's, that's the gist of worldizing 
as a technique. That's that's just what it is, how it works. The question of how it's used is when it gets really interesting. It's an ingenious enough effect as it stands, just as a technique. But as far as its artistic application, especially in American graffiti, uh, it gets pretty wild. You need to say something. I've been talking for like <laughs> five minutes straight. <laughs> How about we hear a comparison? Uh, let's sure. listen to a dry track from American Graffiti. Let's listen to that same uh, number as heard in American Graffiti. So that bit of Barbara Ann occurs when Kurt, played by Richard Dreyfus, is running down the street and cars, all of which are tuned into the same radio station, move in and out of frame and following us cars is the sound perspective of each of these individual radios playing the same song, which gives this kind of whirlwind of audio. So I think the genesis for this idea came from Lucas's original. He wanted to uh, reverse the usual relationship between music and diegetic sound in film. He wanted, in lieu of a non-diegetic score, for there to be diegetic music at all times playing. The film is essentially this non-stop cavalcade of pop music as heard through various uh, audio instruments, um, as played by the town's one DJ, it seems, uh, Wolfman Jack. Creating that soundscape almost feels like the whole point behind the film. And then everything else is uh, kind of built on top of that. On a purely literal level, you would you could stand on a sidewalk and have five cars drive by. And they would not only all be listening to the same song, but because it's a radio broadcast and it's contiguous, everyone is listening to the same part of the song at the same time. So that sense of the communal effect of radio in these open window, often open top cars driving around the streets for young people is a really, really important idea in American Graffiti. It's really thematically important in the sense that these kids are for their childhood, all sort of in a way, living to the same song, living to the same rhythm and and lifestyle. And at the end of the movie, there's a pivotal moment when a car playing a song explodes and the f- song just abruptly cuts off. And that's, I think, a signal that pretty soon all these kids are going to be going off and listening to their own songs and living their own distinct lives and coming to extremely different ends. The film's kind of worldizing doesn't just follow, you know, physical prosaic rules, too. Um, A lot of the times it feels like the decisions made as to how, quote unquote, wet the mix should be. Those decisions often feel more driven by the emotional needs of a scene uh, than how a situation would actually sound, you know, in that moment. Um, I think especially of the intro to Only You by The Platters that plays right before Kurt makes his phone call uh, late in the film. And as the camera cranes down towards his car, we start with the music kind of filling our speakers. And as we move in closer to the car, the music becomes more and more diegetic sounding. Um, This is kind of the opposite of what the camera's doing, right? The camera is moving closer to the car. We should be getting closer to the source of the music. Instead, we're not. We're actually moving away from it. Um, It's a scene transition, but it also is kind of leveraging the film's language of reverb to create a um, emotional state that feels more, I guess, poetic is a good way to put it, than just purely descriptive of where the camera is and where the character is. 
yeah, it, it's immediately after the explosion that cuts off green onions. And so the effect is that now that that explosion has cut off that shared communal music, as we move in closer to the character, we're moving farther away from that music he's listening to. The music is sort of passing out. It's a very sort of a subtle, implicated thematic effect, but it's really good. Another thing going on here is Walter Murch talks quite a lot about worldizing and how he mixes the wet and the dry version of the sounds as a matter of focus. And I mean that literally as in depth of field focus, like the way that a camera will throw part of the image out of focus while the other part is in focus. So he thinks of a wetter mix as throwing the audio mix out of focus and a dry mix as throwing it into focus. And that makes a, a lot of intuitive sense because it's more indistinct if it's out of focus. And if it's out of, and if it's out of focus, then the stuff that's in focus, i.e. the stuff that's drier and clearer in the mix, is much easier to hear and much easier to focus on. One of the best scenes in the film, I think maybe the best scene of George Lucas's career is the smoke gets in your eyes dance sequence when two characters move out onto the dance floor at a big school dance and smoke gets in your eyes starts playing it's quite clear it's it's fairly crisp sounding it's a it's a relatively dry mix and once they get onto the dance floor walter merch just mixes it full-on wet they're out there dancing to this song but it is so indistinct that there's barely even a perceptible rhythm to it didn't. I asked you out. What do you mean you asked me out? Backwards, David. And the music becomes so muddy that it takes on this kind of ominous portent. And as they're dancing, they're having this really harrowing discussion. And you can see their relationship breaking up right in front of you. So the music is being thrown out of focus. And these characters and their trauma is being cast into really sharp relief. And... I think that's a really great example of the film throwing in this clear divide between the culture that these kids revel in and escape to, which is predominantly a musical culture. And that is an escape hatch for them to some extent. And that ultimately the music is not a part of them. It is a thing separate from them that they're trying and often failing to get closer to as a means to make sense of their lives. I think that scene is a great example of the film's complex relationship between its camera direction and its sound perspective. Um, as a cinematographer, I always see the position of the camera as where do you want the audience to be, right? Um, if the camera is a thousand yards away on a telephoto lens, um, but it, even if it's a close-up, the audience will know that they're observing something from far away. The audience can do that math in their head, even subconsciously. I think Lucas uses that to great effect here, uh, where the scene goes from a medium distant, you know, the camera feels 12 to 15 feet away tracking shot. Then at one point it cuts to a point of view shot from the audience's perspective of the two characters dancing. Uh, it's on a long lens. Uh, we see two characters in the foreground muddying our frame. And I think most importantly, the sound perspective on the actual characters changes. We see them talking, but we don't hear them. We are seeing how this conversation actually looks, right, to everyone around them, which is that it's kind of innocuous. Um, and then we abruptly cut to a handheld close-up on a wide-angle lens with the camera very close to these two characters um, and they're whispering now and we can hear them whispering. Um, so we have camera perspective following our diegetic sound perspective, but our music perspective unifying all that. Um, and on top of all the other things you said, um, and 
that gap between the two that kind of widens and closes throughout that scene, um, I think is almost this mortar. It ties all the other elements, the perspective shifts together into a coherent whole and allows Lucas, the camera director, to do some pretty jarring stuff without actually being jarring. It's a lacerating scene. It's yeah, I feel like people who think that Star Wars, the first film, was a fluke of some sort and have, really have not paid enough attention to American Graffiti. I, I think the divide, even though American Graffiti was a much more conscious attempt to make a popular film than THX was, and Star Wars was really not that crazy coming after American Graffiti, I think the stylistic to jump from American graffiti to star Wars is easily the biggest jump in his career. And you can, the sound design really reflects that in star Wars. It's obviously a different sound designer, Ben Burt and star Wars also has one of the greatest sound designs of all time, but it's a completely totally different, different tool set. Yeah. Yes. Invented sounds, very, very dry um, mix, at least in terms of Foley and sound effects and, and totally different, use of music well i think i think it shows that the the auteur be, kind of behind the sound design of star wars was basically someone who was hands-on with the foley um the yeah. sound designer and walter merch who i would say is pretty clearly the auteur behind the at least the implementation of the sound of american graffiti is a re-recording mixer uh he approaches it from a different kind of set of presumptions about what his place is in the film it's also worth noting that Walter Murch was not the first person to arrive independently at this concept of they would later call worldizing. Um, someone beat him to it. Yeah. As Walter Murch personally discovered while he was doing the 1998 reconstruction of Touch of Evil, Orson Welles actually had come up with more or less the same concept a couple of decades before, or at least one decade before Walter Murch did. Orson Welles had devised this means of recording music for Touch of Evil that would make it sound like it was played over these cheap street speakers. Because Touch of Evil has all these scenes where music is being played just from these speakers in houses or in the streets. And Welles didn't want them to just sound like they were clean recordings, but he also didn't want them to sound like well-polished echo chamber sounds either. He came up with this process to just take the recorded sound out into the back alley behind the sound studio and, as he put it, louse up the sound. And then he recommended recording it again on just a crappy speaker to even further degrade the quality of the sound. The difference between that and Merch's approach to worldizing is that you would only have access to mix one track, right? Because Wells at the time did not have the technology to be able to mix between the wet track and the dry track of the re-recorded sound. But it is the exact same principle at work. And I, th I think it's a pretty, besides being a pretty fun example of how you should never presume that you're the first person to come up with a technique <laughs> or that you know the first time a technique was done in film or in an art form. Besides all that, I think it's a really good example of the question of intent. If you've seen more than one version of Touch of Evil, you probably know that the famous opening shot has music over it in the original version of the film and in the preview cut of the film. And in the 1998 reconstruction that 
Walter Murch cut and sound were mixed to try to approximate Wells's intentions. The opening shot does not have Franz Waxman's score over it, but is a bunch of diegetic sounds. So the cars, the sounds of people walking by, the music playing over the loudspeakers. And it's actually a criticism of the scene sometimes that it sounds too modern for a film that was made in the 50s of Touch of Evil's budget. It just does not sound like something that could have or would have been done. I personally have not seen the documentation to be sure exactly what it would have sounded like or would be possible. I I think on one hand, it's certainly true that the mix is very sophisticated in that sequence. It's pretty technically advanced. It's probably not something that Wells, even if he had the bleeding edge technology to do it, at the time, I doubt he wouldn't have had the time or budget in order to accomplish it. So you get into these tricky questions because of that, of these sort of two different men who had this very, very distinct idea and how you reconcile completing one of their incomplete works when you're using advanced technology to achieve the desires of someone who only had limited means at the time. I just think that's interesting. We might we might end up cutting all this, but I, I just think that's interesting. <laughs> While we're talking about the difference in means and technology over time, I think it's worth noting that today, for the last couple of decades, worldizing as a technique is pretty much obsolete. It is very rarely done deliberately, especially in a industry professional setting. I think depends. That depends on. Um maybe how you look at what constitutes the technique, right? The means, for example, you know, recording in George Lucas's backyard with loudspeakers bouncing off the walls, those are pretty much obsolete. Yeah. Uh, we do it, as Lucas would say, with computers now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but the lessons learned from developing those techniques, you know, the idea that, you know, you should essentially shave off the sharp edges of sounds. Um, we've basically now just modeled those worldizing techniques. And yeah, yeah, I would that's, say we have a digital worldizing now. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I mean. And even Merch no longer uses analog worldizing techniques. He does it entirely through those digital tools. It can be pretty difficult, you know, to worldize something and capture the exact same effect of certain spaces but there is a point at which you move from the subliminal to the unnoticeable do you think that's the next thing that they're gonna that the all the you know kind of old school people will latch on to the whole like you know the like like film is more authentic so now we have oh no no worldizing with uh in the real world is more authentic than digital no, nobody cares about sound <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine if there was like a, a christopher nolan of uh worldizing i'm gonna <laughs> well, do everything that's what i mean it's just not order, it's, you know? it's not as it's not it's not the microphone the boom mic is not as famous as the camera and so because of that people are much quicker to over inflate visual techniques and uh and to misinterpret the tools and their effects than they are with sound. Anyone listening to this, even if you're already impressed by American Graffiti, should go back and really listen to it and listen to how that perspective changes even moment to moment and how that affects the film. I think it's worth knowing too that I've, uh, as far as I know, 
I can't think of any films that have used this technique in such a multifaceted way and so extensively. I mean, Apocalypse Now has the single most famous example of worldizing, the Riot of the Valkyrie scene. Merch, you know, has used this technique before and since American Graffiti. It's worth noting that the first time he used this technique was actually in the wedding scene that opens The Godfather. Um, it's worth noting, too, that the version of American Graffiti that you're hearing here and you're almost certainly to see in the wild is not this version. They later kind of juiced up the sound mix uh, in the mid to late 70s. The film was re-released. Merch kind of used it as a dry run that's re-released to create a new stereo mix to prepare for the multi-track 5.1 mixing that he'd be asked to do in Apocalypse Now. So the version you're seeing is actually not the original mono mix that people saw in theaters. Um, it is a significantly, almost certainly, I think, improved version because Merch, I think, greatly improved as a, as a technical mixer in those years. Um, you can compare this to you know, the scene in, that opens The Godfather to see what he was actually up to in the early 70s. I would kill to hear I would. I would just love to hear the original mix of American oh, yeah. Graffiti. I've never if heard of it. If anyone has an original print of American Graffiti with the first <laughs> mono mix, uh, please let us know. Get the optical track to us, please. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Um, any, any final notes we should wrap up on? Any other? I guess not. Yes. We'll be doing a live show this Sunday at in Beverly Hills. That's not true or legal. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, American Graffiti. I mean, there's a reason why when people talk about worldizing, it is virtually always not only the first reference, but the primary point of discussion. It is that singular of a sound design, that movie. And it's really, really worth really closely listening to. I, for the life of me, have not been able to encounter any films that I think meaningfully build on this. Maybe Mad Max Fury Road because there was a flamethrower guitar. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> We're keeping all of this. <laughs> See ya. Goodbye. If you want to come on the show or have an idea for a topic, you can get in touch with us by email at filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. It really helps other people find the show. Join us next week and we'll see you then.